Oh, good morning, church family. Hope you are doing well. We deeply miss you. It's been a joy over the last couple of weeks. Uh, myself and a couple of the elders have been able to visit some of the small groups and actually see some of you. Um, and so with that in mind, I was just going to say, if you're someone who's just wanting to catch up with us, uh, the pastoral team would love to do that, uh, particularly in this season uh, over Zoom. Uh, we're able to do that. So please do email us. and We'd love to get in touch with you. If you're visiting Canterbury for the very first time, or if you are checking this service out and maybe even never checked out Christianity before, and this morning is the morning that you're going to explore a little bit, welcome. Or maybe this is going to be the last time. No, I hope that doesn't happen. Oh yeah, I forgot. My name is Shabu. I'm one of the pastors here at Canterbury, which has now become a bit of a line apparently. It is really my joy and privilege uh, to dive into this passage of scripture from the book of Hebrews this morning. As we continue this series, uh, last week, Mike did an amazing job. If you haven't checked it out, I really encourage you to go to our, our website or our YouTube channel and you can look up the talk again. What he was really wanting us to do through God's word is get us to consider and get us to take stock of our lives. We were encouraged as well to keep going, to persevere, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. It was also a moment for us to consider if we plateaued in our faith to kickstart that again. And it was an invitation for those of you who are exploring the Christian faith to come and explore with us. This morning, we're going to continue. Uh, so if you have a Bible, if you could turn to Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 20, and then chapter 7, verses, chapter, sorry, chapter 7, verses 1 to 28. So if you have a Bible, let's head there, uh, and we're going to be looking at Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. Here is God's word. Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This morning, what I would love for us to consider is two things. One, Jesus, our anchoring promise. And two, Jesus, our forever priest. With that in mind, would you join with me in prayer? Uh, Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and I know that you see each of us this morning. You see the very season of life we are in. You already know the week that we've had, perhaps even the morning we've had. Oh God, would you minister to us through the truth of your word lord jesus i pray that it will be for your glory alone in your mighty name jesus amen uh, there's something about when someone says i promise 
that hopefully should cause our hearts to have a bit of a reassurance. Or when someone makes a statement based on a higher authority, that should cause us to even have, I guess, again, some sort of assurance. But when we think about oaths and promises, I don't know where your heart goes. Perhaps some of us become doubtful, skeptical, and maybe some of us might even say things like, yeah, let's wait and see, particularly in the climate that we're in. But friends, that's not who God is. When God makes a promise, when he makes an oath, we can actually anchor our very lives to that truth. Not alone because of what he has said, because of his very character, who he is. And the verses in front of us, the author of Hebrews is reminding a church who attempted to go back to what they know. And they're facing various trials because of their faith in Jesus. And so the invitation is to focus their eyes and to have their heart gaze at the very promises of God. And so what the author does now is go back to someone who's very familiar to them, beginning with Abraham. Now, whenever Abraham is mentioned in the Bible, particularly in the Jewish mind, they're thinking already about promises. And so we know that Abraham is a significant character in the Bible, in all of the Bible, and particularly in the Jewish mind. So when the author recounts the story when God made a promise to Abraham, it's to bring in remembrance for them. So you can actually follow this if you want to. And on the time in Genesis 12, 17, and particularly Genesis 22, God promises to Abraham that God will bless him, not only with the son, with many descendants, numerous amounts. So Abraham waits. Uh, the thing about here is in this summary verse, it says that he waited. Uh, we forget what that actually really means, right? Abraham was 75 years old when he received that promise from God. So he was 100 years old when Isaac was born. That's 25 years. Now, some of you who are maths wizards already trying to calculate to make sure that was right. That's what I read in the commentaries, okay? Now, note what the author says. He waited to obtain the promise. In all of Abraham's life, you can read it, and we've been there. We know that he had twists and turns, great joys, great failures. He messed up. And yet the truth is, it's revealing to us, it was not dependent on Abraham. And that's in that very significant moment, if you remember the story, right? When Abraham is asked by God to sacrifice his holy son, Isaac. So God asks him to sacrifice Isaac. Remember that moment when he goes to the mountain, that servant is there, what does he say? Stay here, the boy and I will go and worship the Lord in that mountain. And then we will come back again. All Abraham had was to cling to what God had said, his promise, his word. It's a reminder to you and I, we are totally dependent on God. We're dependent on to trust in his promises, that the very circumstances that cause us and buffet us and cause us to doubt, we can actually turn to God, to the one who will always keep his promises. So you have in verse 16, this whole conversation about oaths. Now, like I said, in our day and time, we might not really see the seriousness of this. 
An oath in the Bible, actually any oath really, but an oath in the Bible is significant. And in the ancient world, an oath was used by, and those in particular who feared God, as a way of saying, this is a higher authority that we're clinging on to. So this very high authority that I'm using to say I give this oath will also give great assurance of truth. It was serious. I mean, if a person did this and they were lying, actually they were breaking the third commandment, that is to misuse God's name. So here, this church is reminded, and I love the way, I think that the preacher or the writer is the cheeky way of saying, well, the reality is we as humans, we make lots of oaths, we make lots of promises. And you know what? We will break them because we will lie. Not God. Even though we can definitely take God at his word, and we should, and that should be enough, God is yet gracious to make an oath. You see that in verse 17, by making an oath with himself. As he is, there is no higher authority than him. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it, friends? Even in verse 18, what a beautiful truth to consider. It is impossible for God to lie. This is how glorious, how perfect, how righteous, how holy God is. Everything that comes from his mouth, his word, is always true. And because of that, the invitation there in verse 18 is to come, to flee, to find refuge in him and his very promises. This past week we were chatting as a pastoral team and one of the pastors, Cameron, was just saying how this theme is so beautiful and so comforting. Is it not that we can find refuge in our great God? This language is so strong in this passage to hold fast to the hope that was set before them and us. Uh, Church, the world that you and I live in makes many promises, many oaths, many reassurances. And we are tempted, are we not, to cling on to those? The question is, is it better not, we're not question, should we not cling or seek refuge in the only truth that will never lie to us? Let's be honest, though, for a majority of us in this season, it feels like this never-ending, I don't know what the technical term is, I think the technical term is blah. Do you feel that? Uh, that's not a theological word. It's not in the Greek. But then there may be some of us going, well, I don't actually feel blah, but it, it feels as though you're trying to stay positive and so on, but it feels unending. How long, O oh Lord? Here's the thing. Those circumstances might not change. We don't know when, if, or when they change. But the invitation is this, to find refuge in what is truth, the very truth that God will always keep his promises. He will be the only truth that we can find shelter in. This is the hope that has been set before us. Uh, This language of hope, we might throw it around, particularly in our day and age. It's not some sort of airy, fairy kind of word. It's not just about being positive or optimistic. The reality is being positive or even optimistic can only get you so far because it does not have the strong enough anchor. The hope the writer speaks of in verse 18 to 20 is much more than a word. It's actually a person. 
The way that the writer describes Jesus here is just wonderful. And I would encourage you to take time to read it over and over again. Have a look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's a reminder to the church then, the things of the past will not give you sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. And not only that, the very reason or the very season that they're in, that season, and particularly in that church, most commentators say they weren't being liked by their very own countrymen because of them believing in this person called Jesus now. Even the neighbours there were starting to slowly persecute them and eventually they would have an intense persecution as a church. That very storms of life, even the storms of temptation that's calling them, the only thing that will be the only truth that will keep them sure and steadfast is the very anchor for their soul. And this is all there to give them hope. And prayer gives you hope too. But why? Well, this hope, this is Jesus Christ. He has entered the inner place behind the curtains. He has gone as the forerunner and one who has gone before on their behalf. I remember when we looked at the book of Exodus and the time when we looked at the tabernacle, we learned about the significance of this. So unpacking this in front of them and seeing this is God's promise and that is his oath that he will offer you, he's provided for you an anchor for your life, that he will fulfill it. And he has, and ultimately he's provided a greater hope that is Jesus, his son. I mean, that image of the curtains, do you remember when we talk about curtains? It's not like the one you might have at home. This curtain was that curtain that hung between the inner and outer chambers in the tabernacle. So no one could see it. It was very, very thick. The Holy of Holies, you could not have access to. There was only one person. It was the high priest. But that was only once a year. The outside of that curtain on the other side were the various elements of worship. The altar of incense, the candlestick, the showbread and so on. So on one side, you have a place where elements that are there to draw people to worship. On the other side, you have God's very presence. And right in the middle, a curtain. And now we have this image. I want you to see if you can picture this. It's of an anchor, not downwards to the depths of the oceans, but an anchor from God. The very presence of God to his people. And the one who has made this possible is the hope in fullness, that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's anchoring promise. He has not only fulfilled God's oath in fullness, and using the language of uh, Hebrews, you've already seen this, this language of better or superior. He's the one who has gone before us to come and invite us to follow. The question is, what is our sure and steadfast anchor this morning, friends? For your soul, for my soul. What are we hoping for? What are we anchoring to? That lockdown would end? That the vaccine rollout would fix everything? That restrictions would ease? That kids will be our success or work or super or even success in ministry? Is it not true? I don't know about you. I know for me, you are 
you and I are tempted day by day to come and put our sure and steadfast hope in many anchors that will not actually secure our souls. They can't. That's not God's promise for you and for me. It is only in Jesus alone. The very language of the anchor here is the imagery of a ship that is secure in the turbulent seas that will not sink or get smashed against the rocks or get washed upon the shore. It's an anchor that's deeply grounded and secure. The anchor and hope follows of Jesus is Jesus himself. He is our hope. He's the very secure anchor for our souls. Only he can be. This is what God has said. He does not lie. And the invitation is to find refuge in that truth, displaying how Jesus is the anchoring hope as God has promised. The author now wants to reveal even more how Jesus is far more superior in what they already know about, that Jesus is now actually the forever priest. The author wants to reveal that to him. So have a look with me in Hebrews 6, starting in verse 20. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He's first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, who continues a priest forever. As we've seen, the Hebrew writer is doing this wonderful thing of bringing up topics or subjects from the Old Testament, from Scripture, things that the Jewish audience is so familiar with, and then showing them how Jesus is far more superior. And particularly, we now come to the topic of priesthood. Uh, When it comes to priesthood or even the topic of Melchizedek, now kids, have a go at saying that really fast three times. We may be tempted to skip over, avoid, or we might see, well, not really important, you know, you don't see me in a priestly robe here today. Uh, And so we might even get stuck in the details. I know I do. I love that kind of stuff. But what the writer is doing here, the Hebrew writer wants to show how Jesus is the forever priest. But his lineage, as a priest would say, is not from the traditional lineage as they would have known. That is the lineage of Aaron, the lineage or the Levitical lineage. This is far more superior, his lineage. If you have a chance, I'd encourage you. Dr. Don Carson has done an excellent job on a talk called Get Excited About Melchizedek. And so that's what I want us to do. I want you to get excited about Melchizedek. I can hear the cheering through the screen. In chapter 7, verses 1 to 28, the author wants to show how Jesus is definitely the forever priest and he's far more superior. He shows that by saying, well, how is he? Well, his very name itself, using Melchizedek as the tangible evidence of this. So the writer points to them, this very mysterious character, right? He is mysterious, Melchizedek. Going back to that moment, if you remember in Genesis 14, where we meet him, For the very first time, you know that story when Abraham has just come back from battle. And what the author wants to draw is their attention is to this. See how great Melchizedek is? I mean, his very name means king of righteousness. 
and that he is the king of peace. The way the Bible introduces him as one who has no genealogy, it's very important, right? If you know genealogies, particularly in the Bible, you know how significant it is. So the question is, even then, perhaps, and maybe even for us to go, well, who is this guy? Now, like I said, that tan, you know, tangent stuff that people spend lots of hours, papers have been written on it. You can sure you can find those things. Some may argue that he's just a person, or others say that he's sort of like uh, Jesus appearing as this priest, what's known as a theophany. In my opinion, I don't think so. I think the very Genesis account shows him as a human. And particularly when we're talking about theophanies in the Old Testament, they were usually had a title that came along with them. They weren't as mysterious. Or particularly when they arrived, they might not recognize them straight away, but later on they did. And there's this language of resemblance, or, or then there's also the promise of a priest that is to come after. So this is why I think it's not Jesus uh, coming as Melchizedek. The writer is using actually a, a what's known as a Jewish way of teaching. That is to use the silence that's there to draw out, to cause the person to pay attention to what the real truth is. To show ultimately that Jesus is superior. See, the point of Melchizedek is to foreshadow Jesus' qualifications as the forever priest. I mean, Melchizedek's name itself foreshadows the forever priest, that of Jesus, he is king. His very nature, not only that, he is righteous, and that he's also the king of peace. And the very thought of Melchizedek does not have a genealogy. is not meaning that he didn't literally have one, but what it's saying, it's a foreshadow of the forever priest, Jesus. See, Melchizedek's genealogy is from, not from the line of Levi, like the other priests of the past, like Aaron, just like Jesus. Jesus' bloodline, literally, particularly in the context of the scripture, is from royalty itself, from the line of Judah. He does not come from priestly line. Yet, Jesus, as the hope and promise of God, his priesthood from his name and his lineage and his shows how superior he is, like Melchizedek. His calling is not based solely on anything else, but on the calling of God himself. Just like Jesus. Remember that Melchizedek is described as the priest of God. And this is a way of saying God gave him that title. It's the same thing. God is the one who appointed Melchizedek. God is the one who appointed his son, Jesus, as the forever priest, priest to the God most high. And as the forever priest uh, even shows um, how significant he is, that even Abraham brings the spoils from battles and shows how Far more superior he is that he blesses Abraham. The very actions of Abraham towards Melchizedek shows how superior Melchizedek is. And Melchizedek showing his very blessing shows how superior he is even to Abraham. And to push that further, I mean, I think this is quite cheeky of the writers to say, if you can imagine the sermon is being read out, saying, well, technically, there was someone who would come from the line of Abraham. His name would be Levi. Actually, he's still not born yet, but he's part of that heritage. So in some ways, technically, Levi is giving the same thing to Melchizedek. I mean, friends, I don't know if you figured it out. There's so much here. 
And the heart of the preacher is going to great length to show not only is Melchizedek far more superior in his name, but the very act of Abraham shows not just for him, but also for the line that is to come from him, why this order of priesthood is far more superior than theirs. Because it foreshadows the forever priest, Jesus. And so just in case they're not convinced, you have this in verse 11 onwards. It clearly shows why. See, as a church and community, they're looking or they're tempted to go back and they're tempted to go back to what they know. And the author is saying, hey, don't. Why? Because the Levitical priest line wasn't enough. Because if that was true, if that was enough, what they offered, if that would make you perfect, then there's no need for Jesus. There's no need for Jesus. Actually, there's no need for a high priest like Jesus. But God knows. God knows that this this priesthood, this lineage will not be able to make a people and a nation holy. There needs to be a priest, a better priest, far more superior priest of God's choosing. One that is both king and priest. The one, and if you have time, I encourage you to spend time in Psalm 110. This is what's been quoted a couple of times here. Psalm 110 is what's known as a messianic psalm. It's speaking of the Messiah that is to come. The author makes it clear that the one God has chosen is now also the one who is the forever priest in the order of Melchizedek, in the order of king and peace. In this order, Jesus, the forever priest, in verse 9, reminds us he provides for us a better hope. This idea of better hope is introduced. One who does not separate us from a holy God, but draws us in. This is why Jesus, as the forever priest, as it says in verse 22, is the guarantor of a better covenant. What's going on here? The author is going to great lengths to say, Jesus has done this. Now today... Jesus acts as a guarantor for those of us who are still on earth, waiting the full outworking of this beautiful, glorious covenant. This is to bring then hope to them and to us. Jesus, our forever priest, will do anything and everything according to his very nature to meet our needs. And he does every day, friends. Does he not? Jesus is our forever priest because God has said so. His word says so. He does not lie. And Jesus is the guarantee of that. This is powerful, friends. Jesus, the forever priest, in his very name, in his lineage, in his status as the eternal one, unlike the priests who have gone before, those priests would die. Jesus does not. He is not dead. He is risen. And he continues in this role even today. Forever, actually. And because of this, there's an invitation to you and to me to draw not away, but near to God through our forever priest. I mean, the very existence of Christ and his role is to make um, intercession for you and for me. Jesus, our forever priest, is so wonderful. In verse 26 onwards, he's described in this beautiful way. He is holy. He is innocent. He's unstained. He is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He does not need 
to offer sacrifices for his own sin because he is sinless. Yet in all of this, what does he do? Verse 27 says he offers himself up as the once for all sacrifice. God alone can only do this, and he has through his ultimate promise, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can do this. And these verses are like a crescendo, like it's a powerful song to declare how for our forever priest is the one who has triumphed over sin and death. He is the resurrection. He is the one who's risen and he's now ascended. He's in glory. He's seated on the right hand of the Father. He's currently at work. He's interceding for you and for me and for his church. The son who is now made perfect forever. Dear friends, what that is meant to do is to ask us, what is your need, Christians? And when we have those needs, where or who do we run to? In a sense, who are the priests that we're running to make us right with the Holy God? I don't know if you have done this when you've messed up and sinned. In that moment, do you seek God's forgiveness through Christ? Or do you think, I need to do more good things and somehow that will outweigh my bad? What we're doing in that moment is being our own priests. Or, or when our loved ones or our kids come to us and seek forgiveness, do we play the role of forever priest? Will we point them to the forever priest in Jesus? Perhaps you're that person who people love to come talking to about their various problems and issues. That's great. As you love them, as you serve them. But do we make ourselves, in a sense, the forever priests? Do we become that person? Or do we point them to Jesus alone? Perhaps right now, you and I feel that sense, that feeling, that, that, that moment, that sense of storm, whatever it might be. Friends, if you are, not know as much that there's this anchor that we can hope to that is Jesus. The truth is Jesus has anchored himself to you. Both as your anchor and hope for your soul and as your forever priest. If you're exploring the Christian faith, you will, and whether you realise or not, you've anchored your life to many things and your soul to many things and the hope that will bring satisfaction for your soul. It will not, my dear friend. There is only one who will. His name is Jesus Christ. We implore with you. We cry out to you. We ask you to turn away from those things and turn to Jesus. Remember who he is the one who is righteous, the one who is king, the one who can only bring peace for you, for your soul. Turn to him in faith and give your life to him today. Because only a relationship with Jesus can truly anchor your soul. Only his work will be satisfying to the Father. If you are a very follower, I know there are many of us, particularly in this season, Come. Come to that sure hope. He's clinging on to you. You belong to him. Not only that, he's right now. 
want you to imagine this. He's right now interceding on your behalf, on his behalf of his church. And the invitation for you and I is to go, to, to, to read, to dive into, to meditate, to consider, to sing, to write, to pray the truths that God's oaths and promises in Jesus will always be true for you and for me and for his church. Jesus is our anchoring promise. Jesus is our forever priest. Would you join with me in prayer? Oh Lord Jesus, we come before you. Thank you so much for the truth that we can anchor our lives to you as our great hope. We thank you that you are the forever priest. And we pray as your children, and we cling on to these truths, these promises, these oaths, as we live for you in this world today. God bless church family.